Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10, if you would. Daniel chapter 10. A young college student was taking an exam, and he was you know, busy, busily working on the exam. And, and the time was up. The professor called for all the exams to come in. And, and so as they started to turn in their exams, the professor said, hey, hey, before you turn it in, I got a sheet of paper here I want you to sign that says you received no outside help on this exam. So this young man who was taking the exam, he was a Christian and his conscience sort of, you know, gave him a little bit of check there. So he went up to the professor and he said, you know, I don't know if I can sign that piece of paper or not. He said, because before the test and during the test, I was asking God to help me. I was praying, say, God, help me. The professor said, well, let me see your test. He looked at it. And after a couple of minutes, he returned it to the boy and he said, listen, son, you can sign my form with a clear conscience because God did not answer your prayer. The truth is, there is a lot of prayer that, from our perspective, God does not answer. In fact, I want to suggest to you that at times, it's not just that God doesn't answer it, it's that it seems like God's almost going in the other way, right? So we're having a lot of struggles and a lot of pressure on us and a lot of things not going our way, and we're praying, God, relieve this pressure. And what does God do? Seems like he adds more, doesn't it? It almost seems like instead of answering my prayer, he, he does exactly the opposite of what I've asked. We're going back to our study this morning in the book of Daniel, and we're going to pick up with chapter 10. And I believe that chapter 10 may, at least in some small way, reveal to us some reasons why maybe some of our prayers are unanswered. And you see, I'm hedging a lot there, but it's the truth. Some of our prayers may be unanswered by some of the things that we catch a glimpse of in Daniel chapter 10. Now, let me update you because it's been a while since we were in Daniel, and some of you maybe haven't been with us for Daniel at all. Daniel is a young man who was captured by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and he was exiled out of Israel before the fall of Israel, actually. He was taken to Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar made him a, a ward of the court, if you would, and trained him and made him to be someone that Nebuchadnezzar could use as an advisor, most likely advising him on issues related to the people of, of Israel. Now, you'll remember that Daniel excelled. He excelled above all the other men in his group, and eventually Daniel would become like second to the king, not just in one administration, but like four different administrations. Daniel would be like second in command, always rising to the top because of his character, because of his walk with God and his relationship with God. The first six chapters of the book of Daniel are related to Daniel and his life, the things that Daniel did, some of the things he did, his interpretation of dreams, his his honoring God to the point of being cast into a den of lions and surviving that. Chapter 7 is a, is a mark in the book where things change, and Daniel's book becomes a series of visions that Daniel experiences in his recording of those visions. And that's where we are in our study in the book of Daniel. We're in that second half, and we've actually come to the very end uh, of the book, if you would, the, the last vision in the book, though there are three chapters, 10, 11, and 12, still left for us to cover. Chapter 10 introduces this last vision, introduces it in the sense it's sort of like a prologue to the vision, although it is the actual vision that we're going to be talking about, some of the things in the actual vision, but the vision really is about what the angel is going to tell Daniel, and we're going to look at that in more detail in over the, either the next Sunday or the next two Sundays, I have not decided but this morning, we want to start with the introduction. So if you have your Bible, Daniel chapter 10, we're going to start with verse 1. 
In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message, and he had an understanding of the vision. Now, verse 1 tells us that Daniel received this revelation, this final revelation, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. That is approximately year 536 B.C. Now, that date's important because that's the date in which the exiles returned to, to Jerusalem for the very first time. A group of Jews returned back home. About 49,000 of them returned home. But here's the important part. Daniel was not among them. Daniel stayed behind. Perhaps it was his advancement in age, his, you know, he's approaching 80, if not in his 80s. Maybe it was his age, maybe it was his position of leadership and authority in, uh, in Persia at this point that kept him there, but he stayed behind and he did, not, uh, he did not go forward with the exiles to return home. It's during this time that he has this final revelation that he records for us, a revelation where it says that it's a message that's given to him of conflict and a message that he, that he under, understands. It's a message that's true. And so we'll come back to that as we go through it. Verse 2, in those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three works, weeks were completed. We're not exactly told, we're not told at all what motivated Daniel for this three weeks of mourning. Now that mourning would have meant that he fasted during that time, maybe not everything. He tells us that he fasted meat and wine for sure. Uh, He fasted during that time and he would have been praying during that time of mourning. He didn't use any ointments to to make himself smell better. I read one commentator said basically he didn't use deodorant for for three weeks, all right? Verse 4. Not sure why that would approach godliness, right? But, but I guess he's not, not being acceptable to people or something, okay? So he, he chooses not to eat and he chooses to pray and, and not to put on perfumes. Verse 4, on the 24th day of the first month, while I was at the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of, of upaz. His body also was like beryl. Let me interject here that I looked up what beryl was. It's a gem that is a transparent pale blue and yellow. Okay, so it's a mineral gem, kind of palish green, somewhat transparent, has a blue and yellow hue as well. His face, I continue with the text, his face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult. So at the end of these three weeks of of mourning, that is of fasting and praying, he's standing by the Tigris River, and he looks up and he sees this amazing man, this amazing figure. Now, I guess I'm trying to be a little bit funny, but as I thought about it, he's kind of a cross between Iron Man and Aquaman, if you ask me, all right? The man is not identified. The description reminds many of the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Many of you were in our Bible study time prior to this, and, and that was actually the text, and there was actually the description that's listed there. Uh, Revelation 1 is definitely the Lord Jesus, but I, I don't think the, the descriptions are all that similar. However, that's led some to speculate that the person that appears to Daniel is the Lord Jesus prior to his incarnation taking on this form. I'm not among them. I believe this is simply one of God's angels that appears to, uh, to Daniel. Verse 7, 
Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, I, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sounds of his words, I fell as a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground." Now, Daniel's the only one that sees this figure, okay? He's the only one that sees it. However, it's obvious to him that everybody else senses the presence of this figure, and he says they are afraid, dread came on them, and they all fled away. Even though he's the only one that sees this this figure, everybody else flees because they sense his presence. And Daniel says about about his own self, he says, when I saw this, my strength just left me. I turned pale. I I didn't have any more strength. And then verse 9, if if I'm reading it correctly, Daniel faints, falls to the ground, faints with his face in the dirt, all right? And he faints, verse 10. Then, behold, a hand touches me and set me trembling on my hands and knees and said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken these words to me, I stood up trembling. So the picture is Daniel's fainted in the dirt. The figure walks over to him and, and, and shakes him and basically says, Daniel, Daniel, get up. Man of high esteem, get up. Listen, I've been sent. I got some words for you. I want you to listen. And Daniel stood up and he says, he stands there. He says, my knees are knocking. I'm so afraid. Verse 12. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief Chief princes came to help me, for I have been left there. I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Now what the angel says here is, is really interesting. I think it, it's it's revealing, though it's not all that informative. He, he says that from, from the very beginning of Daniel's praying, God sent him a response. But the prince of Persia withstood him for the three weeks, for 21 days. And then he says, at the end of that 21 days, Michael, God's chief priest, came and helped me. And so I'm here to reveal to you things about the future because Michael came and liberated me. The implication seems to be, had Michael not come, he would not yet be there at this time anyway, giving, giving Daniel this report. One other thing this morning that's not in my notes, but I just I remembered it from this morning in my going over this, is the angel says to Daniel, now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. Uh, And he says, okay, I'm sorry, let's go back up to verse 12. You have set your heart to understanding this and on, on humbling yourselves before your God, your words were heard. So whatever Daniel seems to have been fasting and praying for, at least in part, it was Daniel wanted understanding of this. Now, what is the understanding of this? It doesn't tell us, but, but the implication, especially as we get into the vision next Sunday, I mean, yeah, next Sunday, you'll, you'll see that it's really about Antiochus Epiphanes in great part. Now, you remember that he, Antiochus was the subject of the, of the vision in chapter 9. So it seems to me, and this is Jimmy kind of putting it all together, it seems to me that Daniel is still 
struggling with understanding the vision of chapter 9, and he's praying, Lord, I want understanding. So it seems like this last vision in part is to give greater understanding to Daniel about the previous vision that, uh, that, he, has, that he has received. Let's pick up with verse 15. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord, I myself, Daniel, how can I, Daniel, talk with such as, as one like you, my Lord? As for me, there remained just no strength in me, and nor was there any breath left in me. So the next thing Daniel does after the, after the angel says what he says to him, Daniel's face goes down, he's staring at the ground, he's standing there like this. Next thing he knows is this person, this, this, this uh, figure, is touching his lips and lifting his head and saying to him, you know, uh, does he say anything to him or does he lift him up? He just lifts him up. And, and Daniel opens his mouth and basically says, I'm sorry, but I don't know how to deal with this. How, how can I be talking to you? I, I don't even have any breath by which to speak. I don't, I don't have any strength. Now, I personally do not know, and maybe, maybe you could shed some light on this later on, why would Daniel have reacted like, why would he have been so afraid of this character that's standing in front of him? I, I, I do not know the answer to that. I, I did think that we're so used to seeing weird creatures on TV with science fiction you know, maybe we're just so used to seeing people's creativity of, of what something somebody might look like that wasn't one of us. Maybe, you know, maybe the Daniel, I mean, Daniel's experienced this in, in real time right now, right? And, and it was just that scary to him that he just couldn't deal with it. Verse 18, then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. And now notice what the angel said to him. O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as, I, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So the, the creature, the angel, the, the being that's in front of him says to him, Daniel, you are a man of high esteem. Do not be afraid. Be courageous now. And whatever the angel said, I mean, it, it gave Daniel strength. He says, I feel strong. Now speak to me what you've come to tell me. And so now the, uh, the angel begins to speak to Daniel. Verse 20. Then he said, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. All right, so the angel begins, and, he, and I think it's almost a rhetorical question. Do you understand why I'm here? And I'm here to speak to you concerning the, the writings of truth. And again, this is just Jimmy trying to figure out what's the writing of truth. But maybe Daniel has written down the vision of chapter 9. And maybe the angel's saying, I've come to help you understand the vision of chapter 9 that you've already written down. Either way, he then tells him this thing that happened. He said, you know, I, I fought against the prince of Persia 
And I'm going back to fight the prince of Persia. When we're finished here, I'm going back to fight the prince of Persia. And let me tell you, the prince of Greece is just on his heels. He says, um, and there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So he's going back to fight. He says, I'm really going to be fighting by myself except for Michael is going to be with me. And he calls Michael your prince. So there's the prince of Persia, there's the prince of Greece, and then there's the prince Michael who is Daniel's priest. I mean, Daniel's uh, prince. So some people will say, well, Michael is the prince over Israel. Or he could be the prince over Daniel. Either one of those. I think it's probably Michael because we see him at other places in Scripture. I think Michael might be the prince over, over Israel. I'm not sure. So, or, or a prince over, uh, over Israel, a good prince over Israel, as we'll talk about some more. So, we're going to, that, actually, we're going to stop right there. So that's the end of chapter, am I right? That's the end of chapter 10, everybody? Okay, so we're going to stop right there. We'll pick up with, with the angel's teaching uh, or what he comes to tell Daniel uh, next week. But this week, I, I want to kind of go back because in this, in this chapter, we have a little bit of glimpse into some things uh, that, that, that Daniel would have wanted to know and that we get to know because it's been recorded for us. And uh, some things that we know for sure, some things that we don't really know for sure, I'll talk about both of those. But I want you to see some things as it relates to prayer in particular. So I entitled this, I entitled this talk this morning, uh, something about prayer, I can't remember what I entitled it. What I entitled, prayer in the, thank you, prayer in the heavenly realm, all right? So, because I think there's, there's some things about prayer that we need to understand that will help us. So let's begin, I got four of them, so if you're kind of clicking down the time, four things I want to share with you about prayer from this chapter. The first one is this, the prayers of believers seem to be immediately heard by God. In other words, when you pray, God hears what you're praying. And, and it's not just your lips. The prayers emanate from our heart. So the minute a prayer rises from your heart, God is able to hear it. The angel tells Daniel in verse 12, the moment you began to pray, your prayers were received in, in heaven with God. The moment you began to ask for wisdom, God answered your prayer. I was dispatched to come and, and give you an answer to what you were praying um, sometimes we feel like, don't we? At least I do anyway, that my prayers are, are empty. My prayers aren't going very high. God's not really hearing them. You know, that's, that's really just our feelings. It has to do with where we are emotionally because according to the Lord, He, he hears our prayer. One thing that this talk reminded, or this preparation for this talk reminded me about this week was there was a time in the past where all the time, especially in our gathering on Sunday morning to pray at 8, I would often pray this prayer, Lord, you are not a million miles away, but you are right here in the room with us, hearing us. None of our prayers are missed by you. And I would remind myself that, that, that God hears my prayers in the instant. And so here's my applicational suggestion for us from this truth, because it's definitely true that God hears our prayers immediately. And my applicational, my applicational suggestion for us would be this that you remind yourself whenever you pray that God is with you, that He's right there, that He is not far away. Sometimes it feels like, especially if you're going through, if you're going through the ringer, if you're going through a time of, of testing and, and just, you know, it just feels like God's a long, long way away because why is this going on in my life? Remind yourself when you pray that God is right there. He's hearing you. He's listening to you. He's not far off. He's not a million miles away. He's right there beside you, in you even. Number two, 
they're longer a little bit the rest of them, okay, just so you know. Unseen spiritual warfare may at times delay affirmative answers to our prayers. This is something I think that we can definitely know for sure, that there is a warfare in a realm that we know not that can actually affect God's answers to our prayers. And it's pretty clear from what the angel tells Daniel, my, your, your prayer the, the, the answer to your prayer was, was dispatched, if you would, by God immediately when you prayed, but I was detained by the prince of Persia, and, and there's a correlation between the 21 days of praying and the 21 days of Michael coming to release this, uh, this angel from the prince of Persia. So it seems obvious that there, in this case anyway, that the prayers were delayed by a, by a, a a warfare going on in a realm we know not. So what about us? Are delays to the answers to our prayers due to spiritual warfare? Um, I don't see how we couldn't say that at least at times, at least sometimes, this would not be true today. In other words, why would it have just been true then and, and not today? So I'm, I'm willing to say pretty categorically and pretty clearly that at times our prayers may be answered because of, of this warfare that's going on in realms that we know not. So the application, I think, for us when it comes to praying would be this. Don't, don't accept a no answer immediately and give up praying, but continue to pray. And, and, and pray till God tells you not to pray or till God makes it really clear. My answer is no. You know, pray and don't give up praying because we don't know what's happening in this realm we don't see. Now, as I was going through this, I was remembering the story in, in 2 Kings chapter 6, and most of you may know the story, but Elijah, the, Elisha, excuse me, the prophet, is with his, his, his servant Gehazi, and in this particular story, Gehazi is scared to death because Ahab's armies have surrounded him. Let me read it to you. Just listen. It says, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early in the mo next morning, an army of horses and chariots surrounded the city. Oh, no, my Lord, what shall we do, the servant, Gehazi asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw hills filled with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And the enemy came down toward him, and Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elijah had, Elisha had asked. Now, we are physical creatures, everyone. I mean, we live in a physical realm. Everything is touch and all. But there exist, outside of our realm, by faith there exists. We know it exists, okay? A spiritual realm, a realm that is not physical. There are non-physical created beings in this realm, created by God. We're physical beings. They are not. However, like in this physical realm, you know, we, we have hints in the Bible about where they rebelled against God as well. And, and somehow or another, that war in this spiritual kingdom, it, 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 has, it has a playground, if you would. It has a battlefield in this physical realm, in this physical kingdom, which God has created with us. So exactly how they mesh, I don't know. But according to this story, there is a degree of interaction between that spiritual realm and our realm as it comes to prayer. And there is, at least at some level, sometimes, the, the possibility that prayers are delayed and being answered in the affirmative because of this warfare that we don't see. Now, before I move on, let me caution us here. There is a glimpse into this, but it is an extremely nebulous glimpse at best. 
For instance, what happened during the 21 days where the angels contended, or the angel contended with the prince of Persia? What happened in those 21 days? How did they contend? We don't know, because the scripture doesn't give us anything about that, how the conflict played out. Exactly how did Michael, the archangel, how did Michael put an end to this this spiritual battle between Aquaman and, and the king of, I mean, the prince of Persia. How, what weapons were used? Was it brute force? Did the, did, did the prince of Persia grab the angel by the neck and put him in some spiritual prison? And Michael snuck in in the night and freed him from the spiritual prison that he was in? Again, my point is, and I hope you get it, is we don't know any of that stuff. And for us to speculate on all of that kind of stuff is, is it's just out of bounds. What we do know, though, is that at some level in the spiritual realm, prayers were hindered from being answered for at least 21 days. If we couple the angel's story with what Paul told us in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 6, listen to what Paul said. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Now, that's led some people to speculate, okay, to take what Paul said, couple it with Daniel chapter 10, 10 and, and, and they have created a, a whole array of, of evil spiritual forces that are ranked, you know, with kings and princes and principalities, and there's all kinds, and there's foot soldier, uh, demonic evil spirits, and, and all that sort of thing. And then, of course, God's got his own hierarchy of, of good angels, and and uh, many teach that every country has a, every people group has an, an evil spirit over them. So there would be the prince of the USA, and there's a prince of Uruguay, and a prince of Mexico, and, and, and on and on we go. Others have declared there's evil spirits of adultery, lust, uh, murder, thievery. So you got the spirit of alcohol on you. We got to cast the spirit of alcohol off of you. And people surmise that evil spirits have the right and authority and responsibility from Satan to destroy the works of God, and and I think that there may be some truth in that. Now, you know, there's really no end to people's attempting to to put this together, and and I get it, so hear me what I'm going to say right now, because this is how I want you to be, okay? This is how I want you to be, because I think I'm right in this. These things may be true. Those things may be true. But here's the point. But if they are, at least from our perspective, they are at least in great part conjecture. That doesn't mean they're not true. It just means that we have to be careful how how tightly we hold to some of these things that we conjecture up to be the truth. Everybody following what I'm saying? I'm not saying these things are not true. I'm simply saying that they're beyond the realm of what's been revealed to us in the Word of God. We know the princes delayed the answer to Daniel's prayers, and I think we can probably say with great certainty that still happens today. So my application would be, hey, listen, don't give up. Pray. Pray and continue praying. That leads me to my third point, which is this. We should, like Daniel, persevere in prayer. We should not just make prayer this one-and-done thing, because Daniel prayed and fasted for 21 days about this one issue that evidently he's praying about. Now, I tell you, I, I don't know about you, but I struggle in my mind and heart about that because after all, one and done ought to do it, right? God hears my prayers. Why do I need to keep praying over and over and over? Have you ever said that to yourself? I've definitely thought that to myself, right? Why do I have to keep praying, God, about something over and over? You heard me the first time. Am I going to somehow badger you into doing this? And yet at the same time, 
You know, this text reveals that, that Daniel's perseverance in prayer, at least it's implied that Daniel's praying here had something to do with the angel's release. 21 days of praying, 21 days before Michael comes. I mean, it seems that's not just a coincidence. God's trying to make a point there. And even if I'm wrong, that we cannot make this case absolutely from Daniel's prayer, that we should persevere in prayer, I think we can definitely make this case from the New Testament. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells this story. You remember it well. It's of a man who has a friend come in the middle of the night to stay with him, and he doesn't have any bread for in the morning. So in the middle of the night, he goes to his neighbor's house, and he knocks on the door, and he said, hey, I've got a guest. And remember, hospitality is a big thing. I got a guest. I need some bread. And the guy hollers back, hey, we're all in bed. They all sleep in the same room. I mean, it's not like us. Got a bedroom for every kid. It's not like that. Everybody's in the same room. Hey, we're in bed, and I'm not going to get you the bread tonight. Hey, I need the bread for in the morning. No, go away. Hey, I need the bread. And Jesus goes on to say, hey, the guy won't get up because he's your friend, but he'll get up because you keep on knocking. And then Jesus makes this application. He says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be open. And then the application coupled with the story, Jesus is basically saying, keep on asking and keep on knocking and keep on searching. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells another story. It's a story that I don't particularly like. You might not like it either, but it's the story of the unjust judge who will not give justice to the widow. And, and she keeps coming and begging for justice and begging and begging and begging and begging for justice. And finally, this unjust judge says, man, I got to get her out of my hair. I'm going to answer this lady. And then Jesus' application says, will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? So, you know, again, the, the, the applicational point in Jesus telling that story is not comparing God to the unjust judge. He's comparing us to the widow who knocks and knocks and keeps asking and asking and asking. And he says, will not the just judge of the universe grant to those who day and night cry out to him for that justice? We are told in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. We're told in Colossians, devote yourself to prayer. There are many reasons we may not get a yes answer to our prayers. And one of them may be, listen, and I have no, no qualms in telling you this. You can pray till you are blue in the face, but I believe there are some things God's going to say no to them because they're just not his will. And all the faith in the world and all believing that you want in the world that God's going to grant you what you're praying for, I, I think that is a misapplication of Scripture. And there are things that God is going to say no to no matter how many times you ask for a yes, He's going to give you a no because they're not His will and He's not going to do it. However, this story seems to imply that unless God has said no and you know He said no, keep on asking. Keep on praying. Keep on seeking the Lord for that thing that you're asking Him for. Now, Dickie, I've got to tell you that this gave me great encouragement, and I think it ought to give you great encouragement, because May of 2005, Dickie and I, along with a number of other men, began to meet every single week for, it's been 13 years. I looked it up, because I wanted to know how long it's been. But in May of 2005, Dickie and myself and some others began to meet every week, one morning a week, to pray for an hour for one specific thing. And that was for revival to come to the church and to begin here with our church and, and to send a great awakening to America and begin here in Surrey and Alawite County where we live. And so for 13 years, 
apart from just, I bet I could count on two hands the amount of weeks we have not met. We have prayed for revival and prayed for great awakening. And you know what? To this point, I've not yet seen an answer to that prayer. And sometimes I think, God, why do we do this? Why do we get up early week after week to do this? But, but I was encouraged by this reminder that I should faint not in praying. And that was something God's put on my heart. And I don't believe the answer to that is no. And so I'm going to keep on praying. And I want to encourage you, if there's something that you have been praying for and you don't believe that God has said no, you just keep on praying. Because it just may be spiritual warfare that somehow is keeping the answer from coming. And then my final thing about prayer, humble prayer seems to be our greatest weapon in spiritual warfare. I want to say that one again. I'm going to repeat it verbatim. Humble prayer seems to be our greatest weapon in spiritual warfare. I was a fairly new Christian back in the 1990s, but Peter Wagner came out with a book. It was entitled Engaging the Enemy, How to Fight and Defeat Territorial Spirits. And as we moved into the 1990s back then, you know, it, uh, the church in, in great part, especially maybe the more charismatic side of the church, was, was encouraging us to do warfare against, against territorial spirits, against spirits over this country and spirits over that country or a spirit of alcoholism over this guy or a spirit of murder over this person uh, and that sort of thing. And, and, and Peter Wagner was kind of leading that in, in some of his writings. He was not the first. He was not alone. Uh, S.D. Gordon, back 100 years prior to that, was saying something similar. He said, intercession is winning the victory over the chief prince, and service is taking the, taking the field after the chief prince is driven, driven off. And out of that came this kind of suggested strategy for spiritual warfare. And here's how it went. We need to identify the prince over a person or the prince over a, a land or a people group, and then we need to pray against them, defeat them in prayer, and then, and then service will be permitted, or then, then the word of God will be able to go forward. Back in 1978, uh, there seems to have been something that happened that, that really bolstered this strategy for, for, uh, for spiritual warfare. It was uh, the year 1978, Argentina was hosting the World Cup, and YWAM had sent 200 missionaries there to Cordoba, and uh, they were seeking to share the gospel, and, and they were really getting nowhere. I mean, the gospel was, they were just finding the city to be unresponsive, and so the leaders of YWAM got together, and they determined that the spirit over Cordoba was the spirit of pride. And so they decided that to defeat him, we must humble ourselves in prayer. And so what these 200 missionaries did was they spread out all over the city and in front of everyone, they would get down on their knees and their faces and begin to pray. Let me read you a little excerpt from back then. So they scattered themselves throughout the central mall shopping area, got down on their knees and their foreheads to the cobblestones in full view of passerbyers and prayed for Jesus to be revealed to the city. A breakthrough came through immediately. Large, curious crowds gathered to watch and listen. People took the tracks eagerly and even asked to have them autographed by the missionaries. John Dawson preached in the Plaza de San Martin, and people in the, in the crowd dropped to their knees, repenting of their sins. His interpretation of what happened was the intimidation of the enemy was broken along with the people's pride. So even today, this strategy of spiritual warfare is, is practiced by many. Identify the spirit over this land, this city, pray against that spirit, and then Jesus will be able to triumphantly go through because the spiritual 
the evil spiritual hold on that region has been broken. So I ask this question now to all of that. So is all that true? Is all that true? Is that how we should do spiritual warfare? Okay, here comes my answer. Y'all ready? <laughs> I honestly do not know. I honestly do not know. I, I, uh, that might be a way to do, I, I would never say it's not the way to do spiritual warfare. I'm not going to say that's how we should do spiritual warfare. All right. Uh, again, this, this has to do with brothers and sisters in good faith trying to understand how they apply what we know about the fact that there is a spiritual war going on out there. There, there, is the, there is this battle in a realm we do not see going on. How do we participate in that? You know, what, what, should we participate in that? Uh, you know, again, I honestly do not know. I, I would remind us of this, however, that Daniel is not praying against the prince of Persia. In fact, Daniel doesn't even know, I, I, I speculate that Daniel doesn't even know there's a prince of Persia at this point, right? He does now because the angels told him but in the spiritual realm, but he doesn't even know there's a prince of, of Persia. Now, you know, people might argue and say, well, we do know progressive revelation. We do know things now that Daniel didn't know, so we should pray against these things. Again, I would never say you should not, all right? But here's what I do want to point out. That the spiritual war that was won without Daniel even knowing it was won in great part because Daniel was praying. And, and I want to say to all of us this morning that the key to, to spiritual warfare and the key to, to, the, to the kingdom of God progressing, I, I think we have to take a step back as the church and, and recognize that prayer is our greatest weapon of spiritual warfare. That we need to pray. And it's obvious from Daniel 10 that his prayers affected that realm. Now let me move to the New Testament and let me substantiate what I'm saying in the New Testament. So Paul tells the church at Corinth, listen, you've heard this many times, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. That means they're not, they're not physical. They're not machine guns. Okay, they're, they're not... They're not anything that we consider to be weapons, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So we do have weapons in, in this spiritual warfare, and they are for tearing down fortresses, okay? We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever, wherever your disobedience is complete, or whenever your obedience is complete, I'm sorry. So here's, here's, what, here's what Paul says. He's saying that, that there are weapons that we fight this spiritual battle with. He doesn't name them. He doesn't say prayer is one of them, but, but he does say there are spiritual weapons. And here, here are the four spiritual weapons I believe are named in the New Testament. They are the Word of God, the Scripture. There is truth itself, and there is faith, and there is the Word of God. At least those four weapons exist in this spiritual, in this spiritual war that we fight. And, and so we should deploy all of them. In Ephesians chapter 6, it, I'm not going to read the text, I'm not going to exposit it, but I'm telling you, in chapter 6, we find that the weapons of our warfare are the Word of God and faith and truth and if you would, our salvation, and, and then the, and it culminates this like this. It says, it says, with prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. I'm telling you, I think the greatest weapon of Bacon's castle, our family's warfare, has got to be prayer. It's got to be prayer. We, we, we need to somehow go back and be alert and pray for the saints and pray for the lost and pray and use prayers, our spiritual warfare. And if you want to pray against the prince that's over Surrey, go for it. 
I mean, you know, go for it. You know, if you just want to pray about other things, go for that. But prayer is what is going to win. Evidently, it's, it, God has coupled his, the work of his spirit, the work of his angelic answers to prayers when they're involved. It, it's coupled to our praying. Now, before I'm almost done, but before I finish, let me, let me point you to what Paul then says about prayer, okay? So look at, you don't have the text. I'm going to read it to you. And, and then it says, I'm in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20. And then he says, be alert, pray for the saints. And then he says this, listen, that utterance may be given, pray for me, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, I'm telling you, this, this really captured my heart in my preparation. I wanted to capture your heart this morning. When I'm talking about us praying, notice that Paul isn't praying for a bigger and better life. He's not even praying. I'm in chains. He doesn't even say, pray for me that I can be out of jail. Did you see that? I mean, no matter what happens to us, no matter how difficult difficulty we're in, we're praying, oh God, get us out, get us out, get us out. And I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about getting out of difficulties, but I am telling you that our prayers are so shallow up against the prayers of God's people in the New Testament. They're not praying for the shallow things that we pray for. At least their prayers are not exclusively those shallow things. They, they are praying prayers dealing with spiritual warfare. So, so Paul is, he, notice he doesn't say pray against these principalities. Notice that. He doesn't say pray against the principalities. And you might think I'm arguing against that. I, I, I'm not. I'm just, I'm trying to show you that it's not cut and dry. That that's how we do spiritual warfare. He says, pray for me. Pray that I might have boldness. Pray that I might have courage. Pray that an open door might open up for me to share the gospel. And that's what we ought to be praying for one another. It's what I ought to be praying for myself. It's, it's, what, it's the kind of thing we ought to pray. We ought to pray that the Spirit of God would be poured out on our church and revival would come to our church. And, and we would be awakened to holiness. I mean, true heart holiness. And, and that we would all of a sudden care about the kingdom of God more than we care about anything else anything else. And we would live for that. That's the kind of prayers we ought to be praying for one another, for ourselves, for each other. If we want to do spiritual warfare, we need to pray. We need to pray for the advancement of the kingdom. And we need to never quit, never give up, never give up in, in, in asking God to do this. And, uh, and let, let me say something else here. You know, praying by yourself at home is a great thing. But we need to find ways to pray together as a church. Marshall, I saw you in here. Where are you? We need to do the Friday thing again, man. You know, we pray for three or four hours on Friday night. We need to do that again, guys, because here, I'll just ask you to consider this and to think about it. When you go to the New Testament, most of the times we see the, the people of God and the church of God praying, the temple of God praying, they're always together. They're always praying together. Now, please don't hear me saying you shouldn't pray alone. You should. But I'm telling you, one of the places that we need to pray is together. There, there's something about the temple of God, the people of God, praying together for the Spirit of God to be poured out. So we ought to be praying more. We ought to find ways to pray together as, as a church. Because, again, this final point, I believe that prayer is our greatest weapon in this, in this spiritual warfare. So I end with these words. May God bless all of us, you know, um, 
and, and that we might be like Daniel, O oh, man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Let me, let me just urge us, be courageous, everyone. Be courageous in prayer, but be courageous in life. And, and don't give up. Don't give up. Can I urge us all, let's not give up. Let's keep on pressing on. I, at times, I have felt like giving up. Do not give up, but pray, pray, fight, fight, and pray. Be courageous all the way through. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Run to the cross. Let's never quit. Let's, let's, let's be the people of God in our generation for, the, for this day for these people. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.